Yes. Before we get into uh, the sermon today, I want to just tell you a little story. I like to tell stories if you don't know me by now. Uh, they're usually embarrassing or self-deprecating stories, just to be totally honest. Uh, today's kind of the same thing. Um, I have a brother, I actually have three siblings, I'm the oldest of four kids, um, two younger sisters and then a younger brother who's very close in age to me, just about a, a year and a half or so younger than me. And so growing up, we were, we were pretty close. Um, we were especially close, not just because of our age, but um, because of our circumstances. We uh, moved around a lot when I was a kid, and we uh, actually went to about five or six schools in five years around through elementary school and, and, uh, and middle school, and so obviously my brother did too. And we, uh, so we were just the new kids a lot, so we ended up, we were kind of like each other's best friends. Like, we just didn't really have close friends that were around us, so, so me and him were, were close, um, which was great. Um, but we had one flaw, I would say, in our relationship that, yeah, it was just rampant and almost this, like, obsession that really, uh, it was definitely a flaw, and this is going to sound shocking, I'm just warning you. We like we like to punch each other in the face a lot when we were kids. <laughs> I know it sounds awful, doesn't it? it? Sounds awful. But we wrestled a lot, and my mom would let us wrestle. But there was just like this standing rule: you do not punch each other in the face. That was like the worst thing you could do in my mom's eyes, right? But when we were kids, we were like, I mean, you're wrestling around. Things start to escalate. Eventually, that's the only thing left. <laughs> like, there's nothing else to do but to punch each other in the face. Like, I, don't, I just don't, I don't know what to tell you. And so one specific time, and this might have happened several times, but I have it ingrained in my memory one time where it happened, it came to blows, I got him in the nose, he got me in the eye, or maybe it was vice versa, and my mom came in and looks at us, and we're both standing there, one of us has the bloody nose, and the other one has the eye that's swelling up. Did you just hit each other in the face? And we both, as a unified front, nope didn't happen. Don't know what you're talking about, Mom. Which is so strange. Okay, if I stop and think about that for a second, just minutes before, we are literally committing heinous acts of violence against one another, and then all of a sudden, we are like totally on the same team, unified front, stories are straight, like we are on each other's side. How is that possible? How is it possible that two people can be so at each other's throats, and then in a split second, be totally on the same side and like loving each other. What are you talking about? We're great. We're fine. Nothing. Not, how is that possible? I'll tell you one thing. It gives me a little bit of hope for humanity when I see <laughs> so much dysfunction and dis divisiveness in the world. It makes me think, I think maybe it's possible. Like maybe it's just a function of circumstances and situations more so than, you know, ideology. I don't know, just a thought. But that's my thought, though. What does it mean to be unified, to, be, to, to walk in unity with one another? What does that even look like? Particularly as Christians, is, is what I want to bring to you today. As Christians, from one Christian to another, from one follower of Jesus to another, as people who say, I follow Jesus, and, 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 and I've given my life to him, and I'm what does it look like for multiple people who have said that to walk in unity together? And does it matter? And what value is there in it? And does God even care? These are some of the questions I want us to, 
to wrestle with today. First of all, though, I want to just recap our sermon series a little bit. Uh, we're in this really fun series, I, I mentioned it before, called Loving Milwaukee. Uh, and in, in this series that we've been in for a few weeks, and we'll be in for a few weeks longer, <clears throat> we're asking ourselves certain questions like, do we, do we love Milwaukee? Should we? Um, you know, and when I say Milwaukee, I mean city, suburbs, region, like this area, like where you are. Do you love Milwaukee or is it like just a place we pass through, just a place we live? Is it a place that we just commute into or out of or do we invest in it? And should we invest in it? What value is there in doing this? Looking at the city and where we live and saying, okay, if this is, if this is where we are, what value is there in loving it? Do we love it? Should we love it? loving Milwaukee. And so uh, we saw one of the first sermons Randy gave was um, looking at Jeremiah 29, which has this great uh, classic Christian verse that has been put on cards. And, you know, it's, it's one of those hallmark verses that says, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city, says the Lord. Right? It's a beautiful, wonderful phrase until you find out the context of it is that they hate their city <laughs> and their situation sucks. They've been ripped out of their homeland and their relatives have died and they're, they're, they're in a place where the, the religion and the language is different and everything's awful. They're in Babylon and the Lord says, oh, I actually want you to seek the peace and the prosperity of the city because you're my people. You've been created to be a blessing for the people around you. And so even in your exile... I want you to bless the people around you, even in a city you don't like. Now, I love Milwaukee, and I think probably most of us do, otherwise we wouldn't, wouldn't be here. How much more, then, should we be loving our city if God even tells the Israelites to be a blessing, to seek the shalom, to seek the peace and the prosperity of that city that they hated? How much more should we be concerned about our geographical location, about the people that we interact with? I would say a lot. I think it's a big deal. Let me just read for you, Jeremiah Jeremiah 29, I think, yeah, we have it on the screen. This is what he says. Again, this is in a context that is very difficult for the people of Israel. They just want to go home. They're longing for it to get out of exile, and God says, no, actually, I want you to stay where you're at, and here's what I want you to do. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens. Eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters and find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Seek the peace and the prosperity. This is one of the first things we think about when we think about loving Milwaukee. Do we love Milwaukee? Should we? I would say yes, we should. That where you're at, as a Christian, as people of God, we need to look around us and say, it matters actually how we interact with our city around us. That we're, that we're careful not to just uh, sort of use it. Like, what is it that it's giving for me? But what is it that I can do for it? And think about that. That that's a good thing. We saw throughout the sermon series, we um, we've been calling it exegeting our our city. 
That is to say, uh, interpreting it, if you will. Sort of asking questions like, why are things the way they are? Why do we do things the way that we do? It seems like in some ways we're just sort of pre-programmed to assume certain things about our city and that, that there's just things. We're called the Brew City. You're sitting in a church named after the Brew City, obviously. There's roots to that. There's roots of, of alcohol in our city. Some of it's kind of fun and interesting and, and, and can be proud of, but other parts of it, though, are dark and disturbing and horrible and how... Uh, Alcoholism is, is, is a rampant problem in, in Milwaukee and has been for a while. It goes all the way back to our foundings. And we, we, we saw some, some uh, as leaders of the city, made certain decisions that this still has ramifications today. And so we're facing that and we're just saying, let's look at why we are. Let's exegete our city. Let's think about why things are the way they are. We, we learned uh, about how just a few blocks from here there was just schools of hordes of uh, brothels, tons of them. And, and the leaders actually marketed Milwaukee as sort of this sin city, sort of like the Las Vegas before there was a Las Vegas, of where, where men could come and, and sort of just, uh, you know, have fun, alcohol and brothels and things like this, and how some of those seeds still exist today. Milwaukee, even today, you guys, is seen by the federal government, by the FBI, as one of the hubs for human trafficking and sex slavery. It makes you wonder, were some of those seeds planted decades ago? And there's, the roots of them are still here. These are some of the questions, just asking ourselves, exegeting our city, asking ourselves, why are things the way they are? And we believe that in doing that, that when we say, oh, this is why the thing, things are the way they are, when we come face-to-face with it, we can actually repent of it. That's a, a scary word, but a very powerful word. God, God tells the Israelites in Leviticus, if you repent for your sins and the sins of your forefathers, I will remember my covenant with your people. And so we believe that that holds true today as well, that we can actually stare our history in the face and not, and not have to sweep it under the rug not have to sweep it under the rug, not have to um, pretend like it didn't happen, but we can stare it in the face and go, Lord, we repent for the sins of our forefathers. And that by doing that, he'll bring a new day. And by doing that, he'll remember the covenant of his people that he made with his people, that this is real, that this is, how we, this is one of the ways we can love Milwaukee. And so those are just a couple of things that we've seen over the last couple of weeks, and we'll continue to... Uh, yeah, look at, look at loving Milwaukee from a couple different angles. Today, I want to specifically look at this idea of unity. How is it that Christians can be united in the city of Milwaukee? Because see, I believe, and I'm submitting to you, that a united church, one that works together, one that um, honors and loves one another, can love Milwaukee a lot better than a broken one. That a, that a church that uh, is united, that sees itself as united, is a lot more effective at loving Milwaukee that looks a lot more like Jesus than one that's broken. Maybe that sounds obvious, but I think it's a big deal. Now, how in the world does that work? Our mind could go in a thousand different directions on how, what does a united church in a region look like? Are we talking about you know, I mean, denominational differences and all sorts of things. I want to just clarify a little bit. 
I'm not so much talking organizationally, but I'm talking about assume for one moment that there is a united church, whether or not we realize it or not. Assume for a moment that you actually are united in Christ, like the Bible says. Assume for a moment that there actually is one spirit and one baptism, like the, like the scriptures say. Let's just assume that that's possible. What are the things standing in our way from that? from realizing that and walking that out. That's what I want to do today. So we're just going to take a little, little trip through Scripture. We're just going to look at some, some basic things that you've probably heard of in the Scriptures before, some things that you've, you've heard these stories, you know about it, but we're going to put it in this context of maybe unity is a big deal to God. Maybe it's actually been a big deal all along. Maybe it was a big deal right from the beginning and continues to be a big deal right up until now. Maybe we just don't get it, give it the cred that it actually deserves. So that's what we're going to do. Uh, let's, first, uh, first thing about unity, um, I can't, I always struggle with how to say this passionately enough to get it across without sounding, <laughs> I don't know mean or whatever, Um, because I feel like it's something we all know, but uh, very few of us actually embrace, and that is that you cannot have unity without diversity. Uh, That sounds like a really, like, wishy-washy thing to say, like, oh, that's nice and cute. Um, It's real. You cannot have unity without diversity. You cannot have a group of, of people who all look alike act alike, think alike, and then say to yourself, we're united. That's not unity. That's called an echo chamber. (laughs) That's called a bubble. You cannot have a group of people that all think alike, act alike. And I mean, this is something that we need to ask ourselves constantly. I have to ask myself constantly. Are there people in your life, like just break it down to from this big, huge concept to you and like in your life. Do you find yourself at any point in time, are there anybody, is there anybody in your life who you love and trust? Now, I'm not talking about Facebook or comment sections of YouTube or anything, like all that, none of that counts. I'm talking people in your life that you actually know and trust who think differently than you, who, who vote differently than you, who have different perspectives on whatever issue. Are there people in your life like that? Because if there's not, I'm telling you, you are doing a disservice to the unity of the body of Christ. That's real. And I say that like to humbly convict and hopefully uh, encourage. But it's just a really good litmus test. And it's, it's so easy. I have to catch myself in this all the time. It's just so easy to, to, to uh, surround, you know, because it's hard. It's hard when you don't like what somebody's saying. What's the easiest thing to do? You just stop listening to them. <laughs> you just shove them off to the side and don't listen to them anymore. But what I'm saying is that there should be, there better be people in your life that you love and trust who actually think differently than you. Diversity matters. Let's just look at a couple of examples from Scripture. The very first disciples. The very first disciples, when Jesus initiates his kingdom and he says, I'm here to bring about the kingdom of God on, on earth as it is in heaven, and here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to call... Twelve guys together who all have a very reasonable understanding of the scriptures, very open-minded, 
uh, are willing to discuss them uh, thoroughly, um, but, but like all in the same vein. Um, they, they all have a very similar political view. They all um, have the same temperament. This is what I want for my first disciples. No, that's not what he does. He picks 12 guys who are totally different. First of all, you have James and John, which are James and John, sons of Zebedee. So Zebedee is their dad who owns a a fishing company, which means a few things. They probably weren't wealthy, like like super wealthy, but they were probably pretty well-respected and pretty well-off relative to a lot of other people. And Jesus says, yep, I want you to. And then... uh, and then, he, and then he says, yep, and I want the people that work for you. So he, he, he calls on some of the fishermen that work for, for them. So th- th- this would be like Jesus seeing the sons of, you know, Harley Davidson and being like, yep, I want, I want you guys. And, and I don't know if, who the sons of Harley Davidson are or, or whatever, but let's pretend that they're sons of Harley Davidson. Yep, I want you guys who are, whose, whose dad is running the show up there, and then I want the two guys off the assembly line who are building it, and, and, and you're, you're going to be part of my group. This is essentially what he does with, with James and John. And then he asks Matthew, the tax collector. You've probably heard all about Matthew, the tax collector. Tax collectors are awful people. We're not talking like an IRS auditor with like this respectable job when we say tax collector. I've heard it likened... If you were to put that in our context, it's more like a mafia boss, really. <laughs> like somebody who would, uh, he, he worked for the Roman Empire, who the Jews hated, and then he would collect taxes on behalf of the Romans, but then he wouldn't just do it, but mostly, most all tax collectors wouldn't just collect the taxes they're supposed to. You know, if you owed 10 to the Roman government, he'd make you pay 15, and then he'd pocket the other five. So essentially, he'd be stealing from his... Stealing from his own people, betraying his own people. This is a horrible thing. And then there would be consequences if you didn't pay. It was a horrible thing. That's Matthew, the tax collector. But then he also calls Simon the zealot. You know what a zealot is? He's not just the guy who's passionate about his beliefs. I've heard zealots in, in uh, again, to sort of draw it into our context, probably the most... Um, contextualized thing that would help us grasp exactly what Simon the Zealot was doing before he got called by Jesus um, is something closer to a terrorist, actually. Um, Hated the Roman Empire. Passionately, politically, and religiously hated them to the point where um, zealots would do things to disrupt um, just the normal Roman Empire, you know, economy and things. They would do things to try to, like, um, shake it up and, like, They hated the Romans. So here you have Matthew on one hand, who's working for the Romans, and Simon, who hates them passionately and has dedicated his life to seeing that they don't exist. And Jesus goes, I want you both. I want you both on my team. Not just on my team, but I'm actually going to initiate my kingdom on earth as it is in heaven through you. Diversity matters. Clearly Diversity matters to Jesus. He didn't just pick this homogenous group of people. And never, I don't have time to get into it, but never mind the, the role of women that Jesus empowers. I mean, we're told the 12, the 12 men for sure, but man, that was a radical thing, radical diversity of bringing women and giving them the amount of authority that he did. It was so countercultural. Diversity matters. 
If we can't embrace diversity, we can't call ourselves unified. One more example of unity. Uh, let's turn to uh, Acts. So that was, that was Jesus' ministry. But now think about the very first church gathering. The very first time, I'll call this the very first church gathering. This is at Pentecost, right? The Holy Spirit comes down. And now for the first time in human history, you have people from all over worshiping Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, empowered by the Spirit. This is the first account that we give, we give of this. It says in Acts, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there, we're staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Is that the last slide, Matt? Sorry, Matt's slipping over there. (laughs) When they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one had heard their own language being spoken. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Now, there's a bunch of stuff of why that's an awesome question, because this is Pentecost. So there's a lot of theology and history. Just It's an amazing event. But what does this mean? They're looking at this going, these are 12 guys from Galilee, and we now have people from all over the place that God has brought here to worship him. He didn't have to do that. Now, the, the gospel hasn't even gotten to the, the Gentiles yet. We'll get there. But even in those very earliest stages, God says, diversity matters to me. I actually want my people from all over, from all of diaspora to come here and to receive what's happening from all over. Nobody is left out. Do you see how this, there's no, there's no uh, nationalism involved here. There's, no, there's nothing that says... Um, well, you live in that region or you speak that language or whatever, so therefore it's going to be different for you. God was like, nope, right from the beginning, I want to set a precedent. And that precedent is that diversity matters in my kingdom. We're going to be united. It means we have to learn to embrace diversity. Um, as, so when I look at, just to give a little state of Bruce City Church, as somebody who's in leadership here, I'm an elder. I'm one of six elders on our team, on our leadership team. And so I think about this stuff a lot, and, and we discuss things like this a lot. When I think about diversity at Bruce City Church, uh, there's two things I would say I am very proud of here uh, on, this, on this topic. Um, one is the economic diversity. Um, we see people here uh, from suburbs who are well-off, to people who aren't sure where they're sleeping tonight, embracing one another and calling each other brother and sister and saying, I love and I trust you as my brother and as my sister in Christ. Uh, that sounds like the kingdom to me. And I'm, and I'm proud of that in like the best way I can use that, that word. That sounds like the way of Jesus to me. We have, uh, I'm proud of the theological diversity here, honestly. Uh, a lot of congregations don't um, experience what we experience. But there are some, some of you here who uh, would identify yourself as, um, you know, an open theist, uh, Calvinist, Arminian, uh, you know, reformed, um, come from different backgrounds of high church and low, you know, low church and, and all sorts of things, and at the same time embracing one another, going, in the name of Christ, I call you my brother and my sister, and I love you. Uh, that sounds like the way of the kingdom to me. 
and I'm really proud of that. Uh, that that's something that I think about and I pray into, and I want to happen here um, more and more. Um, there's a couple of things I think we could improve on. And again, this is just me talking, so I'm not like, this isn't from on high or anything. <laughs> this is the, the words of Ian Benson, not, the, uh, not official leadership or certainly not scripture. Um, but uh, I would like to see Bruce City Church be more racially diverse, to be honest. Um, so I think about this. Like, what does that look like? How do you do that? How do you, you know... How do you make sure that you're a place that's welcoming for uh, the African-American community and the Latino community? And, and uh, yeah, I think that's important. I'm just saying that. I'm just submitting some of these things to you as to give you an idea for why diversity matters and why I think you can't be united without diversity. So, therefore, we need to seek after it. We need to consider it. We need to look, ourse- look at ourselves in the mirror and say, Am I embracing diversity like the kingdom of God demands I do? Um, I think this one's going to sound really weird. I'd, I'd like to be more politically diverse, <laughs> to be honest. This one's going to sound... Now, look, it's just no secret that we're, I mean, we're a church in the middle of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which is, I mean, you don't have to Google very hard to find out that Milwaukee is a hugely democratic city in terms of politics. Like 80% of the people who live in Milwaukee vote Democrat, right? Like it's not. So I'm just kind of assuming, and I kind of know, like our congregation probably reflects that. It's probably a ref- reflection of that. So I'm just going to say, say it like this. I would like to see more Republicans at Bruce City Church. <laughs> I don't have a stake in that game. Like I'm not saying that for my benefit. I don't, but only from the sake of embracing diversity. Like, I don't want to become an echo chamber. I don't want to become a place, I don't want to live in a bubble. I don't want, to, I don't want our congregation, I don't want our church, either the Bruce City Church or the Church of Milwaukee to be a thing that's where we just are constantly telling each other what we want to hear. I don't want to be that because I don't think God wants that. I think when he called Simon and when he called Matthew, he knew exactly what he was doing. He was saying, my ways are different than your ways. We're going to address some things when we do this. We're going to grow together. We're actually going to be united together. And something beautiful comes out of that, that the world does not understand, that the rest of the world doesn't understand, that our politics can't address. There's something more beautiful there. And so I'd I'd like to be more politically diverse sometimes. I think that unity means diversity. We cannot separate those two. Secondly, unity. Unity is a choice. It is not an accident. It is not something that we stand idly by and hope for. It's actually something that we can press into. It's something that we can look at and go, I choose unity. I choose to be united with this person. I can make a conscious decision to be united. It's not just something that we, we uh, sit back and hope happens. If you're doing that, uh, you're doing the opposite of unifying the church. You're actually creating division. And let me, let me tell you why. Let's look at Colossians 3. This is the Apostle Paul talking. And the Apostle Paul, um, here he's speaking to a Jew and Gentile church, right? We, all, we probably all know this. Almost all the New Testament is dealing with, with this stuff. He's speaking to a Jew and Gentile church. And listen to the, the progression that he gives here, starting in verse 11 of 
of chapter 3. Here, that is in the church, there, there is no Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Now notice the diversity aspect. Okay, there's the nationality, nope. Race, nope. Uh, religion, nope. You know, previous background, nope. None of that matters here. But Paul realizes that it's not quite good enough to just say we all have to get together at the same place because what's going to happen if we do that? And this is what often happens is we just become these silos, right? Like, oh, we're, we're united. So I said on one hand, you can't have a whole bunch of people who look like each other, act like each other, talk like each other, think like each other, and say we're united. That's true. You also can't just have a group of people who are different but don't like each other and don't interact with each other and then say that we're uni united. That doesn't work either. <laughs> that, this is what Paul's getting at. So look at what he says. Here there, here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion. Notice the imperative verbs that he's using. You have a choice here. Clothe yourselves. You can do this. You can make the decision to clothe yourself in compassion, in kindness, in humility, in gentleness, and in patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. Bear with one another. That means that when the church is struggling, uh, when some segment of the church is struggling with something that doesn't particularly affect me, it does affect me. That's what bearing with one another means. It means empathizing. It means making the choice to say, I'm actually going to have compassion. I'm in this with you. What can I do to help? What can I, what can I do to participate? What can I do to, to come alongside you? Unity is a choice. We can actually make this choice. I'll summarize it more like this. This is, how we treat each other matters, friends. I feel like I say this every sermon because it's just, you can throw a dart at the New Testament and find a passage where this is basically the gist of what Paul is saying. How we treat each other matters. There's actually ripple effects to how you honor or dishonor one another in the smallest ways that you, most of us don't even think is, is relevant, but it is. That when we, when we speak to one another graciously and lovingly, we choose to do that even when we don't feel like it. Even, even, and in particular, in the face of people who don't do it to us is especially important as Christians. When we honor and respect one another and we say, you, you have value and worth that's untold in the Father's eyes, and we actually see one another like that and treat one another like that, that has ripple effects too. That breeds unity in the church. And so what Paul is saying here is he's saying, look, treat each other well, and let me finish this, this verse off. Bear with one another and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. My goodness, people, forgive each other. Don't hold grudges. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. So love, this agape love, this, this chosen love that the scriptures speak of all the time encompasses all of these actions of humility and compassion and forgiveness and, and basically just how we treat each other. And when we do this, we find a bond of perfect unity, Paul says. Unity is a choice. 
It's a choice that we can all make, that we can all pursue. If a United Church loves Milwaukee better than a fractured one, uh, I want to choose the United one. <laughs> I want to choose to be part of a of movement. I want to choose to be part of a church that says, uh, I love Milwaukee on a united front, not in a bunch of people pushing and pulling against each other. It's just not effective. It's not efficient. <laughs> if nothing else, it's not efficient. It's not theologically correct, and it just doesn't work, I would contend. Thirdly, unity is the identity of the church. Man, if we could just see this as our starting point, if our starting point could be that we are a unified church, so many problems would be solved. I'm, te- I'm telling you. How many, and I, I do this too, we all do this, that when you come in contact with like a person, just whatever, a random person, like, oh, and you're a Christian? Oh, what church do you go to? Oh, what does that, right? What churches, what, does, what do they believe? What's different about you? What's different about us? Like, this is just where our mind goes. It's like we don't know how to think otherwise. It's like we're pre-programmed to immediately, our default position is, what's different about us? But I would contend to you that the scriptures say that we are united and that that should be our default position. Let's look at Ephesians and see what Paul says. This section in Ephesians is maybe the most beautiful section uh, in all of the Bible, and I'm not just saying that because I'm preaching it. Uh, it. It really is. This is Paul doing a better job. Basically, it's the same sermon, except he's, he does a better job of it here than, than, than I am. He's, he's trying to get the church, this, this band of believers who love Jesus and are following Jesus, but are, there's so much infighting between Jew and Gentile, and there's so many cultural things that are going on in politics and, and language and all sorts of things in religion that he's trying to figure out a way to get their minds up out of that to see the bigger picture, to see what it means to be the church and why being united and, and having a united front and walking in unity with one another is so important. Let's read these words from Paul. Starting in verse 14 of uh, chapter 2. For he himself is our peace, that is, Jesus is our peace, who has made the two groups one. Now, as I read this, he's talking about Jew and Gentile, but just for a second, I want you to, like, as, I, as I'm saying Jew and Gentile or circumcised and uncircumcised or words like this, think, because that's kind of hard for us to wrap our minds, think uh, Republican, Democrat, as I'm saying this. Think um, city dweller and suburbanites. Think uh, you know, Catholic and Lutheran and non-denominational. Think whatever the differences are that, that come to your mind, think that as I'm reading through these scriptures. For Jesus himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. These are declarative statements that have happened. These are declarative statements that are happening. This is not Paul saying, maybe someday if we're lucky we can all get along. He's saying this is the reality now. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. 
For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. You don't, you don't get to call yourself foreigners and strangers now in Christ. Because of, because of the work of Christ, you actually call yourself brothers and sisters now. Even across massive differences in his context, Jew and Gentile, in ours, pick your poison. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is just the theology of the church. This is, this is why we say this isn't the church, right? Not the building or this event, but you are. This is where that comes from. Jumping down to verse, verse 6. This mystery, he calls it, is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. And although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God. What? Let me just read that again. To make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God. Who created all things? His intent was now that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Who are you, church? You are, you are the manifold wisdom of God. You ever wonder why, um, have you ever looked at problems in the world and God, why can't God just like snap his fingers or, I don't know, shoot a bolt of lightning down or, I don't know, whatever, smite somebody or whatever it is that gods do? Why can't you just do that? Like, where are you, God? <laughs> you know, we... We ask ourselves when we see problems and troubles either in our lives or in the world around us. The question isn't where is God? The question is where is God's people because that is God's answer to it. God specifically designed the administration of his, of his mystery, the manifold wisdom. His answer to that is you. You are God's answer to that. How much more united could you be? What, why isn't that the foundation of the church? Why isn't that the, the thing that all people stand on when they go, are you a Christian? What church do you belong to? Oh, what do you guys believe on this stance? What's your position on this? Why is it that everybody goes there and people don't go, oh, you're a Christian? Yes, manifold wisdom of God. Hallelujah. Good to see you. Good to meet you. Why isn't that the starting point? <laughs> why isn't that like, oh, so you, so you know you're blessed to be a blessing then? Yeah, oh, yeah, totally. Why isn't that the starting point with people? with all of us. And again, I'm preaching this to myself because I do it too. Why is our starting point division? Why is our, how come our identity as a church isn't united? Man, how beautiful would it be if it was? How beautiful would it be if we could actually say, as a united church, um, this is what we want to happen in our city. Because see, then that's where the power comes from. That, that's, where, that's where God actually works through his church then the most effectively. 
that when we love, we want to love Milwaukee. If loving Milwaukee is the goal, you know, I went through Jeremiah 29 before, so okay, we're supposed to love Milwaukee. That's good. How, how do we do that? As Christians, if we can't do that as a united, doing that as a united people is just so much more fun. <laughs> if nothing else, it's just so much more fun and so much more effective than trying to do it in separate ways and infighting and pointing at each other. Isn't it? See, I want to stand, I want to stand as a church in Milwaukee and I want to look at, um, I want to look at the city and say, uh, this, is, this is not a barren land any longer, like we read in Isaiah 35. This is not a barren land any longer. The Lord has come, and it's shown by his people. It's being brought by his people. It's being brought by redeemed sons and daughters so that when we look around the landscape of Milwaukee and we say, that's not right, that's not right, that's got to change. We don't do it with despair, but we do it with hope because we know that we worship a God who has united his body, who has commissioned it. He has mandated us and empowered us to do this very thing. There is no other group that you can find on the planet that has as much uh, mandate and power to fix the problems of the world than the church. I believe that. And that's, again, that's not the you know, nonprofits, and there's a lot of people doing a lot of great things who wouldn't call themselves Christians. I'm not, I'm not poo-pooing any of that. But I'm saying as a whole, man, what would a united church look like? What beautiful things could come about? When we, when we look at the landscape of the church and we say, no more will that happen, uh, we declare Jesus over that. When we all do that, man, friends, there's power in that. There's beauty in that. That's the church I want to stand on. That's the church I want to promote. That's the church that looks like Jesus. That's the church that loves Milwaukee. So I wonder in these coming weeks, would you, would you make that decision to choose unity? To uh, not just accept diversity, but um, embrace it and celebrate it. Would you see yourself first as a united church with your brothers and sisters in Christ and not first by our differences. I want to do that more. I hope you do too. Let's stand and pray and get ready to worship. Uh, Lord Jesus, it is so good to be called your sons and your daughters. Uh, I can't think of a greater privilege. Um, I just love um, hearing words of of identity and uh, yeah, and beauty um, from your scriptures and and from you, Holy Spirit. Uh, man, could we see you more today, Lord? Uh, I I think of the um, I think of all the people who are out like walking past this building right now, who just have no idea don't have, even have language for what um, it means to be a son or a daughter of the Most High King, one who has received a crown and a robe and a ring and said, you are an heir of Christ. Uh, there's so many people who have no idea what that even is, what that could look like, what that could be. Um, that breaks my heart uh, just thinking about it a little bit. I can't imagine how broken your heart is, Father. So we say, would you unite your people? Um, 
Would you bring your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven? Would you uh, restore and reconcile things that are broken? Would you, would you give us a heart of compassion and empathy um, and forgiveness? And, and, and we pray against grudges and um, deep-seated uh, roots in our city and in our, in our, um, yeah, our lives that uh, we've just given up on. We, we say that you do not give up on them, Father. You do not give up on the things that we've given up. You see things that are dead and you say, no, I'm a God of resurrection and I bring things to life uh, in, in cities and in towns and in hearts and in, um, in people groups. I see things that people have written off and I say it is not written off. It is still within my realm because this is my kingdom and I will not give up on my children. Yeah. So Jesus, as we worship today, would you... Uh, would you speak to us through your spirit? Yeah, it's in your name we pray. Amen.